This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, David Williams, you're uh, you're making your talk, your book debut. You were one of the early guests on Master the Market, and uh, I think you're probably the most requested guest I uh, I get to have back on. So uh, thanks very much for, for coming back on the show. I'm very glad to be here, and I'm glad to hear that I'm most requested. You've got to... <laughs> Very hard markers amongst that listening base, obviously. <laughs> now, we're going to get into, uh, it's, it's, we're, we're framing this as a chairman's edition today. We're going to get into two stocks that you're chairman of that are ASX listed. But before we get into that, I just wanted to touch on markets more broadly. And, uh, you know, we know they've been incredibly volatile. Um, I guess I'd just like to get your opinion on how you're viewing them. Do you feel we're, we're in the midst of a blow off top right now or how are you viewing markets currently? Look, I'm very bullish on on the markets. I mean, and driven by interest rates more than anything else. Um, you know, we're living in a world where I'm doing deals for clients at less than two percent on fixed for seven, fixed for ten. I mean, I've never seen that in my lifetime. And so, you know, it does two things. First of all, it makes it cheap, and the cost of capital, you know, comes down. But the the flip side of that coin is you don't want to leave your money in the bank at at one percent or less in in some countries zero or negative you know so you know i'm pretty optimistic about um markets and where they're going but having said that you know my own personal investments are really in tech and pharma and they're counter cyclical in a way you know on the tech side they're typically disruptive Mm. and playing into COVID and playing into the new economy and on the medical side they're you know again being disruptive and 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 they're not really affected by market downturns and so forth. You know, what I've got in medical developments, what I've got in Polynova are trauma-type um, products. And so, you know, if you burn 50% of your body, you're going to get seen to regardless of what's happening with the economy, you know. So so I look at my own stocks as being pretty resilient. But having said that, if, if I look at, if I take it up a, a notch, you know, I'm pretty bullish about where the markets are going, and uh, and the only effect it really has on me is that probably people will, you know, price up the stocks in the same way as they're pricing up every other stock. You know, and so it's easy, like you touched on, to say that asset prices are appreciating so quickly, but it's hard to do that without the reference point of the price of money. Yeah. Most of the last crashes, even in '99, you had the Fed in the states pumping liquidity, leading to Y2K. Generally, the crashes that have occurred have been when central banks led by the Fed have started to rip liquidity out of the markets. Is that one of the first signs you'll be looking for to potentially cause a correction? Well, not really. I mean, I mean, I have two businesses. You know, I've got all the investments that I have personally, which we're going to talk about today, but I've got an advisory business as well. And when, so when those corrections come, all asset prices will come off, of course. But I'm not really worried about the financial stability of my tech and medical companies. Yeah. They will survive regardless. And with respect to the more mainstream, uh, you know, old economy, you know, clients, if, if I can put it that way, not being disparaging, but, you know, the, the trick is to make sure you've still got the right sort of gearing so that you can weather any sort of hiccups that you get in, you know, that come from monetary policy and a downturn in the economy. So, you know, will those downturns come? Of course, you know, the market's cyclical, but, you know, I take a much longer view of it, both for my clients and for myself. And that's generally probably what's missing, do you think, in 
in a lot of mainstream, particularly funds management, that pressure to, you know, publish monthly performance or, or quarterly performance. Do you think that sort of stops a lot of investors currently looking longer term, which you're able to do as a private investor? Look, I'm sure with, with some fund managers that's the case. But, you know, I think with, again, with if you look at some of my own personal investments, which we're about to talk about, you know, they're populated by big fund managers from around the world. These are guys are taking a very long-term view. You know, Polynovo is not profitable. Medical developments is a little bit profitable. Rate My Age is not profitable. Um, Felix is not profitable. But, but they're attracting institutional investors who are taking a longer-term view. And so on what basis are they taking a longer-term view? Not just because I say they're good investments, but, you know, what, what, are they, what am I giving them in terms of transparency that will cause them to be more relaxed about the longer term? So I, I'm, I don't easily get on that bandwagon about institutional fund managers' short-termism. Of course, you know, the stock will go up and down depending on the information you give out. But, you know, there's enough sophisticated investors there that will... Um, you know, will take out and, and, and cause you not to worry about people who just want to, you know, knee-jerk reaction. Well, with that in mind, let's get into the first of uh, the companies going to speak today in, uh, in Polynova. Why don't you start with giving the, the viewers a, a bit of a background on, on what they actually do? So Polynovo, I'll skip the history of it because it's been around for 10 years yeah. and it, it, it had the product, which is our main product, which I'm going to talk about. It also had the product that went into the Essendon Football Club, the AOD, AOD 964 or something. That got, got rid of that when I went in to sort of help fix it up about circa three years ago. I forget when it was. But the core product is, is really a, a scaffold that helps surgeons and helps people repair, first of all, burns, but also wounds. And it's, I brought a little piece along today, and I'm not sure if people see this, but this is as, as much as it is. And it's quite a big piece. Normally we sell it in a 10 by 10 around that size there. Now, you can't see this, but this is a phone, just like you'd have your, what you would expect to see your iPhone packed in, for example. And so the idea is that when you've got a deep burn or when you've got a wound or when you've got an ulcer, um, and, and I mention all those things not because we're necessarily uh, approved to sell it for those reasons, but that's the sort of things that doctors are using it for in the US. Um, you know, we'll take, you know, we'll debride you of your skin. You came in with a burned arm, for example, debride you of your skin. We we put this foam on, on your arm uh, because it's going flesh on Fresh on foam, it'll typically go red straight away. Your blood and your cells grow into it, and and we staple this to your arm. And the idea is that over the next month or two, this foam will disappear, and you will rebuild your your dermis. Thus, we sort of call this a scaffold, a scaffold, you know, to help the body rebuild the dermis, and then you can put a skin graft on top of that. So, you know, we started selling this two years ago, and uh, in the first year, our sales were nine million. Last year, our sales were twenty million. Um, I think the market expects that we're probably going to do 40 million plus this year. Uh, we announced in the first half that, um, that that I think we our growth was a circa 40 40% rather than 100% for the first half, um, and so we got knocked down a bit. But the company in in a bit over three years has gone from circa 50 million to a month and a half ago 2.7 billion. We've knocked been knocked back to 1.7 billion dollars. So we're in the top 200. Just to show you, uh, to emphasise my point, by the way, about the fact that there's plenty of institutional investors who are taking a very long-term view of that, and many of them are offshore. So I don't particularly care 
what some of the smaller institutions in in Melbourne or Sydney do, whether they want to sell out or not sell out. It's, it's beyond. It, I don't really care at all because there's some pretty sophisticated guys. When you get over to New York and you get into London, where a lot of the fund managers have doctors, you know, on their panel, they get this. And uh, even when we're knocked back, you know, to 1.7 billion dollars, um, that's a very big market cap when you think about it uh, for a company that only turned over. $20 million last year. Um, I think, you know, going to the issue about, you know, how do people get, so I've explained roughly what what we do. So yeah. here's a product that's largely used for burns. It has spectacular results. You know, in some situations, if you came into a hospital with 50% burns to your body, you're probably going to die. But this will help repair you pretty quickly. And we've had guys up to 90% burns to their body walking around very quickly after it, you know, because this protects the body, um, it allows the body to heal, and it gives the surgeon a lot of time to then put a skin graft on a month, two months, three months, months later. So it's, it's, it's you know, when institutions uh, ring up surgeons doing their own due diligence before they invest, and they do that, mm. they'll find out who are the, you know, top six surgeons in the US, and they literally just ring them out of the blue, and they go, have you heard about it? And uh, all of them, say yes, and all of them say things like it's completely changing the way in which surgery is done, whether that be for burns or wounds or diabetic foot ulcers or whatever. So once the institutions hear that, then they, they, they're they on board pretty much straight away. What I give them, though, is I give them some information about how we go about, you know, getting into the market, right, and, how, and, and so they can sort of feel comfortable about what is our path to market. Um, and and one of the examples I give them is I say, look, you know, three years ago we had one woman selling in, in Australia and New Zealand and uh, it wasn't long before she was doing a million dollars worth of sales. By the way, that piece of foam that I'm talking about there is about 950 US. Mm-hmm. Our, our margin on it is plus 90%. So when somebody does a million dollars worth of sales, it's all essentially a big chunk of it goes to the bottom line. But when I talk to our sales rep in Australia and she says, you know, I'm only seeing 15 hospitals, we think, gee, well, you're capped out at a million. Why don't we get somebody else on board, which we did in Sydney. Then we got another one on board in Brisbane. And next thing, we're not at 3 million sales yet, but we're, we're getting there pretty quick. And so people can see, you know, by scaling, just by salespeople, once you've got the tech right, and I'll come back to the tech in a moment, but once you've got the tech right, that by scaling it with salespeople, you know, they can see that path to profitability very quickly. And and you can see yourself that in a population like Australia and New Zealand, if I could have five people on, for example, then I can have at least five people on in California. Forget about elsewhere. And that's what we're really doing in the States at the moment. We've gone, I think, in the last year from about eight salespeople, I think we're at 23 now. But, you know, I want 50 there as quickly as possible. So, so that's our sort of track, and that's how I give people a little bit of transparency. And talk to me about the competition for those products. With those sorts of margins, it sounds like competition's relatively low. Is there patent protection on the, the Novasorb technology? Yeah, no, there's heavy patent protection. And um, at the same time, not only have we got patent protection, but like all um, good tech companies, we're, you know, we're looking to reinforce those and refresh those as we go, not only in terms of the core product, but we're looking to, to to extend them in terms of new products. So we've got, it's all known to the market, but we've got a product coming out which would be 
the basis of it is this essentially for mm -hmm. hernia and the basis of it is for for also for a breast implant so you know one of the issues with breast implants and hernia implants for example is you got you, know, you might have plastic mesh in your gut um, you've got a breast implant that's moving around so the idea simply put would be you know put the breast implant inside a pocket you know that's not exactly the same as this as slightly but the basis of the technology is and and stitch it in and it vascularizes and holds the breast implant tighter and and gives it more strength and so forth so anyway i won't bore you with a new product development but just suffice to say we've got good patent protection but we're trying to extend it not only to to just to protect ourselves more but to extend it into new into new products and um so that's you know we're, we're pretty happy about that what sort uh, of time frame does your patent protection go out until uh, look, well, we're refreshing them all the time, so yeah, okay. there's an extended thing. But go back to the question you about, asked about competitors, because this is a synthetic product, as you, as you know. And, yeah. um, you know, the major competitors we worry about or look at have a biological product. Hmm. So uh, Integra in the US, um, Aroa in, in New Zealand, and this is typically sort of taking an animal gut, cleaning it, freeze-drying it, slicing it, and so forth. And I say to people that if, if they were on this screen now and I held up a piece of their product and a piece of our product, even though they're different in your hand, they look exactly the same, to be honest, on a photo. But, you know, what we say is, first of all, you know, in general, our product is much cheaper, even though the margins are enormous, like I just said to you, you know, the competitors are much more expensive. That's number one. Number two, we say that our product would, surgeons tell us that our product is superior. And one of the reasons it's superior is because when you um, use a biological product, oftentimes the body will reject it. And I think I've said this to you in the past. If I, if I, you have a heart transplant and I give you my heart, maybe in 25, 30% of cases, your heart, your body's going to reject it. So, you know, the beautiful thing about having a synthetic is that typically it doesn't get rejected. Now, you may get a bit of pus and you'll fenestrate the, the, the product and you may change it. But in general, surgeons love this because, you know, it, it, it increases the success rate. So we sort of say to ourselves, well, we're not only half the price, but we've got a better outcome. And so, you know, from our point of view, you know, there's obviously a lot of pricing fat in the system, you know, if and when we get to, you know, fully, you know, geographically covered uh, regions around the world. So um, we don't worry too much about competitors, We're not worried about them at all. But we do see our competitors at trade shows and, and they always say to us, listen, we can't have a meeting without us having to talk about what you guys are doing with market share. And so we're seeing already some of our competitors taking prices off and saying to a hospital or a surgeon, we'll, we'll, we'll reduce our price by 20%, 30%, 40%. Surgeons not, aren't interested. The surgeons are interested in an outcome, mm. not in the price, you know. And so uh, so we think we're in a, in a pretty strong position, you know. And you talked about scalability briefly before. Maybe touch on... The scalability potential of Polynova in terms of how big can you scale up before you've got to commit to more capex with your uh, your Australian factories? Well, we've um, we're in the midst of finalising a factory build in Port Melbourne, and it would surprise everybody on this call. I think how small that actually is in terms of the footprint, um, and that'll be enough to for us to produce our hernia product as well. But and, and I'm guessing with these numbers, but it's probably enough to produce 10 times what we're producing now, 
without spending more than a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Hmm. So the whole build, I think, is less than 10, just to put it in context. Whereas most of my old technology companies, whether they be a cheese company or a Coca-Cola company, or you know, they're hundreds of millions of dollars to build a plant. Um, and and we've got the ability, you know, to sort of churn this stuff out, if you like. So, you know, I, I in my own mind, I look at that factory and think, well, I can probably do just about everything I ever wanted to do in the US without spending more than a, a few hundred thousand dollars. And when I need to do it, I might put up another small plant in the US or in Ireland or in Europe or somewhere else. So the, the cost, the build cost is, is trivial compared with old, older tech companies, if you like. And the scalability is is enormous, you know, and it's really driven by sales, uh, you know, more than anything else. Uh, when you get to tech companies like Rate My Agent, which we may talk about a little bit later, I mean, there is no there is no even small factory, you know. Mm. You've got some you've got some working capital in terms of your developers, but in a in a company like this, the the costs of production are trivial, you know, compared with the you know the margin you get on the product. Look at all the stuff that's going on in COVID at the moment. Those vaccines and so forth not that easy to produce but you know once you've got the formula you can be just churning them out in the millions as they are and we're in that sort of position so that's a that's the beauty i think of if you look at all of my investments whether they be polynova rate my agent medical developments felix they're all scalable uh businesses where the the amount of capital required to the market cap you know, we're in the top 200 at 1.7 billion and our total factory cost might be 10 mil. You know, if you compare that with any of the major manufacturing companies or mining companies or food companies, you know, the capital spend is is enormous, you know, and and the margins are sort of much thinner. And when, when do you think Polynova will be profitable? And as chairman, how do you weigh up that desire for profitability and, and marry that with the desire for growth as quickly as possible at the same time? Well, I think the, in general, with most of the tech companies I'm interested in, um, I'm not necessarily focused on profitability because I don't want to sacrifice growth for profit. Mm. So I can stop where I am now, for example, if I wasn't in the US, for example, I can stop where I am now and I can make Polynovo profitable just on the basis of three and then going to five salespeople in, in Australia. The prize, however, is for us to get geographical spread and to get it as quickly as possible. And so, in the short term, I'm going to sac I might sacrifice profit in order to spend more on working capital. To go from, I think we're at 23 salespeople. It's a moving target in the US at the moment. But if if I could do five in Australia, then I can have 50 or 100 people in in the US. So that working capital. But having said that, six months in, nine months in they should be able to pay for themselves hmm. because, you know, if they're generating a million dollars in sales, even if they don't get there straight away, if it takes them six months to get to 500,000, fine. If I'm making a 90% plus margin, they're going to start to pay for their, for their, for their way. So, you know, I want to expand that capital base out, that, that geographical reach out as quickly as possible. And therefore I'm not that interested in profit. Having said that, look, you know, just on the way we're going at the moment, you know, I'd probably expect we might be profitable in, in FY22. But as far as the board's concerned, as far as I'm concerned, if somebody says to me, gee, if you put another six people on in Germany or if you put another six people on in Chile, you know, okay, it's going to chew up a few million dollars in working capital for the first six or nine months. Mate, I'm there every day because I know 
when when I go to see the surgeons that they take it. Now, you know, I, I forget, I think we've got something like 30, we're selling, I think, to approximately 30 hospitals in Germany. We know there's another 30 trials going on. Now, maybe people are keeping it from me. I haven't seen yet a case where a doctor has done a trial and then hasn't bought because the results are so spectacular. Mm. So when I when I go out and I've got maybe have six months of, you know, our salespeople getting to know the surgeons, typically the surgeons have already heard about it, the best ones. And then they go, you know what? Yeah, I've heard about it. Let me do it as a trial. So I put it on somebody. Well, of course, that takes a few months to make sure they see what the results are and they put the skin graft on and all that sort of stuff. But once I've done that, you know, all of the feedback I get is the results are spectacular. And, um, and one reason they're spectacular is not just because of what I said before about rejection, but if you see somebody in the street, everybody's seen it. If you see somebody in the street who's had a bad burn, especially if it's on the face, it's so disfiguring, you know, because the old tech was really to put a skin graft on it as quickly as possible. And what happens is that screen, skin graft starts to shrink up. And so it's, it's dis- disfiguring mm. in a way that m- many people find it. You can't even look at a person like that, you know. In the, in the hands of a good surgeon, you know, in the, in the hands of a sensational surgeon, you can hardly see the joints mm. using this product before you put the skin graft on. So, so you end up with much more flexibility throughout the, the skin post-operation. Post Is that definitely. right? Yeah, and if people go onto our website, they'll see us putting this over bone and uh, and and other parts of bodies, and it, it gives you the flexibility. You'll, you'll see plenty of videos where the doctors are showing, you know, the cartilage and the bone, and it's been put on skulls, you know. Mm. So um, it's really unbelievable, you know, to be able to have a company that's making a bucket load of money and, and, and a, clear, a clear path to make a lot more money, but at the same time saving lives and, and, and at worst making you look more beautiful. It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's like a gift from God, really. And there's been a bit of commentary post-AGM about group purchasing uh, improvements and improved distribution. Maybe walk through what that looks like and, and what that'll look like into the future. So we've signed up, I think in the last release we made, we've signed up a couple of GPOs in, in the state. So these are organisations that have underneath them and a, and a, a large umbrella of smaller hospitals largely. And some of those smaller hospitals are looking to the GPO to give the product a tick, if you like, so that then then they have the right to, to sort of buy it. So this is a short a shorter. Some of those hospitals we're already seeing, but you know one of them I think has hundred hospitals under its umbrella. Another one, many more than that. So it's a shortcut for us to get into some of those smaller hospitals without necessarily have to get, having to go and visit them all themselves. So. It's uh, it's good news, but I'm, you know, I'm still fixated in my f- own focus on our salespeople going to see the best surgeons at mm. the best hospitals, you know, at Harvard, at Mayo Clinic, at UC Davis, etc. Um, and because those are the people that are really, you know, um, leading not only the surgeons in the US but the surgeons in the world, you know. And um, so the GPOs and that that's it's cream on the cake as far as I'm concerned. But building the base. You want the best of the best, not only trialling it, but then using it. And, you know, one of the lucky things we've got, and we've seen this in New Zealand just recently, we've seen it in Germany, is you get doctors who are so enthusiastic about it 
that they're putting on their own webinars. There's a group of Indian doctors, for example, believe it or not, in New Zealand who've put on a webinar for Indian doctors, you know, whoever wants to come in. There's a group of doctors in Germany who've done the same thing. So we're getting people under their own steam, by the way, you know, being so enthusiastic about the product, they're putting on a webinar to say to other doctors who want to listen, listen, have a look at this. This is going to change the way in which you do surgery, you know. So um, so the GPOs are important, but, you know, I'm still fixated on making sure the best of the best in each country get it and get it and get to use it properly, you know. So some of our surgeons, for example, we're not just going in and saying, here's a bit of stuff in a pack, go trial it out. You know, a lot of our salespeople are going into the surgery themselves with the surgeons mm. to show them how to do it, you know, or alternatively they'll, they'll we'll co coordinate them with a surgeon who is very experienced in it and, again, show them how, how, how to use it, you know. And so there's a lot of collegial um, work going on amongst doctors around the world to sort of, you know, push this out. Chris, I should say something just here. You didn't ask it, but, you know, about COVID and, uh, you know, what effect it has on it. And um, I think we you know, we only grew something like 40% in the first half, so people were disappointed with that, you know, go figure. But, um, you know, we had, a, we had a not the best October and November. And so even in our own minds, we're going, oh, maybe that's COVID-related. But December was above budget, you know. Mm. So, so I don't see... COVID as having had the effect on, on our business in the way it's had on other businesses. And the reason I say that is because if you had a bad burn, for example, you're going to get seen to. You it's know not elective, I'm, is it? It's not elective. You know, yeah. it's trauma. Okay, there is a part elective to this. If you had a diabetic foot ulcer and you had it for three years, okay, you can, you can wait another month or two. There's no problem about that. But in the main, you know, it's not elective. So I don't see that. Where I think COVID has affected us, is, is where our salespeople are going out to see surgeons. So it's not mm. a matter of how many beds are in the hospital necessarily, but the surgeon might not be in the hospital. So mm. getting those one-on-one -on -one meetings is being more difficult. And um, But having said that, we've got plenty of trials going on around the world. And when we think, gee, wasn't that strong in uh, in the US in October, November, and then in, in the US it was above budget in December. So you go, well... You know, go figure. So we're, we're going to continue to get that growth. I'm not worried about COVID at all. Sure, it's a small hiccup in trying to get to surgeons sometimes. Um, you know, there's plenty of surgeons, you know, ferreted away at home and hoping they don't have to go into the hospital. But, you know, in, it's not an issue for us, in my opinion. It might slow things down slightly. Brilliant. That's uh, it's a great overview of, of Polynova. While you're on a roll, we're going to roll straight into uh, to Rate My Agent and uh, maybe introduce that stock that you're also chairman of and uh, maybe start by telling the viewers what it, what it does. Well, I think um, before I do that, I just want to make one observation about this scalability issue. And somebody said this to me yesterday, and I think it's quite wise, that when you release a new tech product, if you're not embarrassed by it, then you probably released it too late. In other words, even when it's half-baked, get it out there, let people mess around with it and, um, and, and you know, build it as you go. The big difference in scalability between pharma-type products and medical device-type products like Polynovo and, and RMA, for example, is that with a, with a medical device product, you've got to get it 100% right. 
because you don't want to be killing anybody. But you've got to get 100% right even to get through the regulators. Yeah. So you don't have the, the benefit you've got of trial and error and beta testing and that sort of thing that you typically get in a tech company. So I think it's interesting because, you know, some of your listeners are going to be going, well, how do I find an investment that's scalable? And one of the big differences you've got to look for is, you know, just how certain it is. With a med device company, especially when I've got it 100% certain, the tech's there, the best surgeons in the world have got it, I'm off to the races, you know, and all I needed to convince you of is that I've got to channel the market and, and, and then as that grows, you'll be able to draw your dotted line. With a tech company, you know, oftentimes you're getting these investments out there before they're fully baked. Um, and oftentimes you don't even know what the use is. You know, I mean, you, you, you've released it for a certain reason, but when people start to mess around with it and play around with it, guess what? It gets taken somewhere else and it gets refined up by the users themselves, all very healthy. Rate My Agent is a disruptor for marketing of real estate agents. So if you're a real estate agent, question is, how do you market yourself? Okay, sure, letterbox drops, advertisements on REA, et cetera, et cetera. But we're a, we're a platform which has, which, which designs to have in Australia and New Zealand and now in the US, every real estate agent on the site, um, whether you like it or not, because we can get that, you know, that data on you and get your photo and get you know, all your personal details and get every house you got for sale out of the public records, you know. So, but we we want people to be on there um, in 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 its entirety, and then we want to be we attach to you all of your sales data. We attach to you any reviews you've got from either buyers or sellers of real estate. So once I've got that sort of database for you, you can use that to market yourself not only on our site, but I, we've now got products where you can take a review and put it onto your social media, onto your Facebook, onto your LinkedIn, et cetera. So you can sort of push this sort of marketing around. If you flip that coin over, that database is also useful for, for people who want to sell a house and they want to find the best agent. Okay, I live in Hampton. Uh, I want to find the guy who sold the most houses or the highest average price or the highest price or who's got the best reviews or the most reviews or whatever. So I can cut and cut and slice that data to look for an agent that I want. So it's, it gives the agents what they want. So that's the sort of model. Now, so do the agents have to opt into it or you're saying they're going to get rated on, on the platform regardless? If, if you go onto our US site or even onto our Australian site, you'll find some, in Australia, we've got probably 85% of the agents on the site. Yeah. So, but you'll find some agents who are on the site who never opted in. Yeah. But we still collected their data. You know, and so it doesn't have as, as if, if those agents aren't or haven't opted in, we won't. Ha it won't be as pretty as what they do when they do opt in because we <laughs> give them options to upskill their, you know, their site and so forth. Yeah. Um, but and likewise in the US, there's a probably uh, 1.2 million agents in the US. Um, we've probably got a million on our site, but yeah. we've only got a, a bit over 100,000 that have so far opted in. So, yeah. you know. In order to make the site relevant, you've got to have all the data. That's it. So, um, and we'll we'll get that data out of public sources because, you know, when you if you're an agent and you're selling a house, you're advertising it everywhere, and so we're collecting all that data, whether it be from government or be newspapers or whatever, and putting it all together. So, um, so what we've got in Australia is probably got about eighty five percent of the agents. It's the old 80-20 rule. We've got my, the agents we've got on are doing 80% of the business. So, you know, in some ways we don't really care about the rest. And it, it's the same in the US. You've got over a million agents, but probably about 300,000 of them do the bulk of the business. 
So our focus is to get those 300,000 on. And we over at Christmas, we went over 100,000. I looked last week, I think we had 102,000 agents on the site. And so the way in which it sort of works from a sort of monetary point of view, if you're thinking about it as investors, first of all, can these guys get the agents on the site? You know, and my vision is clearly how do I get the top 300,000 agents in the US? Right, that's number one. Then I want to make sure that they're using the site because for them to join the site and get their own images up and their house of sale, so I want them to demonstrably be using the site by every time they sell a house to go and get a review, like immediately go and get a review. And many of the reviews we get in Australia, the guy's like as lobby the sale as he's walking out of an auction. We've sent the review form to the owner and it's done within half an hour. Mm. Like it's the agents are engaged and really engaged. So, so for example, in Australia, we would have, say, circa 35,000 agents on the site. We've got 800 or 900,000 reviews. Mm. So the average, if you did it as just a straight average, the average agent's got, say, 20 or 30 reviews. And, and, that, and that's a drug to them. You know, you're, you're, you're on the site. You think people are looking at you. I just sold a house. Shit. Excuse me. Go get a review. <laughs> yeah. So it's a two-sided platform. What are you more focused on? Are you more focused on getting the agents to opt in or do you think the power of getting those clients engaged will drive more option, uh, more, more agents uh, onboarding onto the, it, onto the system? You've got, to do, you've got to do all of it. You've got to get the agent on. You've got him to then get him to be really aggressive in terms of going after reviews and use the site. And once an agent's got one, two, three review, it's a drug, hmm. you know, because they themselves are looking at their, their profile all the time because they think other people are looking at it. And, and the other reason you need it, just having agents on and getting their reviews, that's not the end game is how do you monetize it? Hmm. Now, an agent of the active agents in, in Australia, we've got about 30% of them paying now, but we need to get that up to two thirds of them or, or more paying. And the reason I'll pay, of course, is if they're active on the site. Not, if, if you're just your images on and you're not collecting reviews, you're not going to pay to, to monetize it and to, and to use your reviews to go into social media. And they're, they're the things we're charging for. So, so you've, got to, you've got to do all three things. You've got to get the agent on. You've got to get him to be active. You've got it in collecting reviews. You've then got to get him to use some of our social media products and then he'll pay. So that's the sort of the... If you if you like the stepwise, and it's not one step is is that good. So, and the US is a good example of that. So we've gone over a hundred thousand agents in the US. I mean, we only got thirty five thousand Australia. So hundred thousand is a lot of agents. And if you look at the heat map, which we've released to to the ASX, we're massive in in California. We're massive in Florida. We're massive in Texas. And now we're getting very big in the Northeast around New York and so forth, and and, and the Midwest. But when we get to two or 300,000 people, people are going to sit up and go, holy shit, this could be something good. Hmm. But if you look at the number of reviews we've got, we're only sort of just approaching 100,000. So it's sort of like one for one. Whereas I just told you in Australia, we might have 20 reviews per agent. Hmm. So we've got to get that sort of review basis up. And, um, and one of the things that's um, made it slower in the US, but it's not slower getting the agents on board. In fact, the agent acquisition is significantly faster than what it's been in Australia and New Zealand. If you look, there's a graph that we released to the ASX uh, a week ago. The, the agent acquisition process in the States is like a vertical line like that compared with a, an Australian acquisition New Zealand line like that. 
Do you think so, the US are just more sensitive to the power of social media? Do you think that's what's driving it? Or what, how do you explain the uptake being so strong over there in the US? Well, I think it's a completely different psyche. So, you know, if you live if you live in Melbourne and you work for, I don't know, Hocking Stewart, for example, mm. you work for Hocking Stewart. Mm. In the US, there's a lot of agents who are under an umbrella, but in their mind, this is my own business. And they're aggressively, you know, entrepreneurial. So, okay, I might be using the Century 21 brand or the Berkshire Hathaway brand, but this is, you know, this is my business. There's a bit of that in Australia as well. But typically, when you work for a brand here, it's the brand's just as important as you. So the, the US psyche is a lot more entrepreneurial, and that means they'll sign up a lot quicker. And so I'm optimistic we'll get to 200,000 this year and, and then, you know, 300,000 really where we want to end up. The other 700,000, I don't really care about. If they come on and they pay, great, fantastic. But we want the people who are doing 80% of the business. That's it. So the question now is, how, you know, given we're taking agents on at a much, much faster rate than we did in Australia and New Zealand, how come the reviews haven't, you know, kept pace with that? And one of the reasons for that is that, in Australia, we really haven't sort of collected reviews in the past. But in the US, they have collected them in Real Satisfied, in Zillow, in the equivalents of mm. REA and so forth and other places. So some of the agents go, we want to be on your platform. But hang on a minute, I've got 10 reviews already on Zillow. Gee, when I get, come to get a new review, I'll stay on your platform, but maybe I'll put the review over there. So what we've been working on is that we've now got an algorithm just very recently, where agents can say, can you transport my reviews that I've got any other place and mm. put them on your platform and hopefully reconfigure them so that they're attached to a transaction. You know, you can, mm. you not only got the review, but you can see the picture of the house and the result and all that sort of stuff. So that, I think, in the very near future, we're going to see, you know, change the way in which, um, you know, we collect reviews and the speed with which we get reviews in the US as well. Because I need both. I not only yeah, need yeah. the agent on, I need him to have the drug called reviews. And then once he's got that, I can show him how to move that stuff around in, in social media and uh, and then he'll pay me, you know. And so for investors looking at this business, should they really see it as essentially a US business with a small arm in Australia and New Zealand? How should they view it geographically? No, well, I think like a lot of the tech companies, um, you know, the Australian the Australian example is proving it in your own backyard, you know, whether you're an afterpay or a rate my agent or something, but the real market is in the US. But look, the US is just also a testing ground for us. You know, once we break the back of the US, then I'm looking over the border to Canada, I'm looking mm. to, you know, Western Europe and so forth. But I don't want to drop the US till I've broken the back of it. And in my mind, breaking the back of it is not to get 100,000 agents, but to get 200 or 300,000 agents. So this time next year, hopefully, we'll be in a position where we go, you know what, we're really broken the back of the US. Let's look at Canada now, and and then it should be a relatively easy sort of fallout, you know. And talk me through some of the numbers. What's the market cap? What sort of revenue have you guys got currently? So the the, the revenue is under ten, but the market caps. Uh, I, I, I haven't looked today, but it's probably one hundred and fifty. Yeah. Um. And uh, you know, to my mind, this is you know properly configured. This is a billion dollar business. But, you know, what I've got to do in my own mind is prove to the market that not only the agents are on, but they're really actively on and using it. Because social media is important. It's important here and it's important in the US. And one of the things that COVID has done for that is because, you know, when you can't do inspections, social media becomes even more important, you know. 
And I'm not talking about just online auctions and that. Mm. I'm talking about you know getting yourself out there, you know. And um, so it's so COVID's been good for us, I think, in the in terms of the what it does to the psyche of a typical real estate agent in terms of how do I market myself in this environment when I can't go and see people, you know. And you've re- reduced the cash burn at Rate My Agent. When do you think profitability yeah. will occur? Well, I think we did a raising, uh, uh, I don't know, four or five months ago at 22 cents. The stock's now at 35, 36. So that's all good. We said that that's, we won't need any more cash before we turn cash flow positive. So, you know, I don't know, when will that be? Within the year, next year? I'm not sure yet. We'll just see. And again, a bit like Polynova, I'm not going to sacrifice profit if I can see additional growth, you know? So if I, if I break the back of the US this year, for example, I'm going to be saying, listen, forget about, you know, forget about just milking it. Let's get over the border to Canada and let's get over the border to the UK, you know? And it doesn't take many people. I mean, we've got an office in the US for a rate agent and maybe it's got, you know, maybe it's got 10 people, you know? So it's just working. It's working capital again. Now, there's a, a saying that I really like, which is don't tell me what you think, tell me what's in the portfolio. Now, you have a lot of skin in the game in, uh, in both Polynova and Rate My Agent. You've got a truckload of shares. Your CEO has some options, but not a lot of shares. Will he be buying shares so that he, uh, he gets more aligned with investors' interests? Well, it's not a question I can answer because I'm not, I'm, I'm not married <laughs> to him and I'm not his bank manager <laughs> and I'm not him. But, um, you know, my guess. Do you prefer CEOs to have big equity holdings in the companies they're running? Because I, I certainly yeah. do. How do you feel yeah. about it? No, I, I, look, I, I completely concur with you. And I, I think one of the lessons I've learned over the last few years is that I've probably been a bit sloppy in the way in which you construct you know, option schemes and shareholder schemes and, and in particular, the retention part of it. And, uh, you know, you could, if I just turn that back on, say, Polynova before I go back to Ray Majin, if you took say Paul Brennan, I mean, he got a whole swag of options. He, I think he had some shares, I'm not sure, but it's trivial, you know what I mean? But those, when you get options, when you're a CEO and the share prices, when I, it was seven cents when I went in, and here we are, the bad boys of the listed company being knocked down to 1.7 billion, the stock's 257. So when you get a lot of options at seven cents or 10 cents, I forget what Paul did, but let's say that 10 or 15, you know, he, he might, it's all public, but he might well be sitting on 20, 30 million dollars worth of stock. So therefore, you know, it's it's not only how you get them there, but then how do you lock somebody in for long enough, you know? <laughs> and I, I think, you know, one of the problems with these high growth companies that really make it big, like a Polynova or Medical Developments and and, and hopefully Ray My Agent, is that you, you don't see the size of the pool coming. You know, it's sort of yeah. like, oh, I'll, I'll give him a couple of million options and, yeah, maybe you'll make 10 cents an option or a dollar if he's lucky. But when the stock goes to four bucks, you know, off seven cents, it, uh, you can create a very, well, not only does he get created, be created as a very wealthy man, but the shareholders themselves do. Yeah. You, you started this session by saying, you know, I'm one of the most requested people to come on. Can I tell you the, the number of people that come to me every week? I mean, not personally, but just, you know, online and. You got a big LinkedIn following, David. But it's, it's life changing for them. Yeah. You know, the number of people who had 10 grand in at seven cents or 10 cents and have ridden it up. And, and then because it's gone so well, bought a few more, you know, to be sitting on, you know, 250 or when, two weeks ago, it's four bucks. 
a share, yeah, it's life changing for for many people, and and I'm sort of I'm proud of that, and it makes me very happy. But it's also something that happens with the the staff as well, you know. Well, it's a very nice problem to have. So, uh, mate, as I said at the start, really appreciate you coming on. Loved catching up, and we'll have to catch you uh, for a uh, for a lunch sometime. Maybe at Flower Drum this time around. I'm always up for it, as you know. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Appreciate Thanks, it. Chris. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.